Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11. And I have, I have personally, in my own private time, been in this passage for a number of weeks now and uh, have really gotten taken captive by it. And uh, when I'm supposed to be studying other things, I'm thinking, i got to prepare. So, you know, but then I'm, I can't get away from this, so I figured, well, let's just preach out of that. But uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And last week we looked at this. I want to do a little bit of review. If, if you guys... If you could put up Hebrews 11 up on the screen, if you could, uh, that would be great. I want us to look here. Uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. That is what the ancients or the elders, really it's, it's the elders, the, those that went before us were commended for. And uh, so that's that is one of the primary statements about faith in the New Testament. It's, it's one of the definitive verses on what faith is. But I would propose to you an even more clear definition of what faith is, is verse 6. Look at this. And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him, A, must believe that he exists. I mean, that's pretty hard to operate in faith if you don't even believe he exists. But B... And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And so it's not good enough just to believe that God exists. You've got to believe that he is the rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. And that principle is one of the primary motivations in the believer's life. That when we realize that God, as the Lord of the harvest, is continually balancing the scales of human activity. And so God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You cannot seek God, live for God, without coming into a reward because God is a good father. He is the ultimate authority. Romans 13 says it's the job of every authority to commend those who do right and to discipline, provide consequences for those who do wrong. That's true of all human authority, whether it's law enforcement to parenting. Uh, but God, as the ultimate Authority would never shirk that responsibility. So God is continually rewarding those who do right and providing negative consequences for those who do wrong to steer us in the right direction. Now a lot of people don't like to think of God that way. We don't like to think of God in those terms. We want to think, oh no, we're in the new covenant. And it's all, it's all roses and daisies and perfume and, and you know. Yeah, but the fact is, God is a good father and a good father will discipline his children. Matter of fact, Hebrews, uh, later in the next chapter, flowing from this chapter, says that if you're not disciplined, you are an illegitimate child. The King James Version is a little more blunt. Uh, that you're, you're not, you're, you're an illegitimate child. You're not truly his if you don't go through discipline because God is a good father. And so he'll discipline us to get us to do right. Amen? All right. So let's look here. Then we jump down to, let's look at verse 32. Look at verse 32. And in here, he's, he's already gone through in this passage uh, these great 
men and women of faith and what they've accomplished through faith. But he introduces in verse 32, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets. And listen to what it says in verse 33. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. Who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Man, now that's some, that's some exploits. That's the kind of stuff we aspire to. That's the, that's the kind of faith stuff that we love to talk about. That's the element that we want to stick on our refrigerator and say, that's what I want to be. But the writer's about to introduce a whole other realm of faith that we don't want to stick on our refrigerator, that we don't aspire to, but it's that group of people of which the writer says, of them the world is not worthy. Before we get into that, we need to not get off of this point that what, what he, when he talks about David and Jephthah and Samuel and Barak and Gideon, verse 33, it says, who through faith conquered kingdoms. These are people who administered, they, 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 uh, they secured breakthrough corporately through faith. They, they were leaders who secured breakthrough for the greater group of people. It says they conquered kingdom, administered justice. That's powerful. Somebody who, who through faith, miraculously, through signs and wonders, David, it says in one passage, he says, I can run through a troop and leap over a wall. That's no small thing. He's not talking about a little, uh, you know, landscaping wall. He's talking about walled cities. David is saying, when the anointing is on me, I can run right through a troop of enemy soldiers. And this is not some, you know, clean, sanitized version of warfare. It's, it's like brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat with battle axes and spears and swords. And this is like Braveheart on steroids. And David says, man, when the anointing's on me, I can run right through a troop. Through supernatural anointing, David can do these things. It goes on to say, uh, who shut the mouths of lions, who they gained what was promised, and that's a key. There is a place in faith, it's achieving faith. It's faith that breaks in, into things and, uh, and gains the promises of God. And that's what we all aspire to and that's what we think about when we are when we are trying to cultivate faith, when we are going after the things of God, that we think of faith as the person who steps in and gets what is promised. And we mustn't let go of that because there's a danger, there's different streams of thought in the body of Christ that goes to one extreme or the other, that either looks at verse, what was it, verse 30, either looks at verse 32 or we look at verse uh, 35. So verse 32 uh, or verse 33, they gained what was promised. There's verse 34, now it's personal deliverance. They quenched the fury of flames. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or make the bed, shake the bed, and into bed you go. They're, they were thrown in the fiery furnace. And it, they quenched the, 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 the heat of the flames. Escaped the edge of the sword. Whose weakness was turned to strength. Who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Man, I love that stuff. It's good manly stuff. 
We need, that, we need to hold the line on that kind of stuff that we are the people that believe God for breakthrough. But that's not the only thing. There is another element of faith that the writer begins to talk about. And it's not either or, it's both and. Look at verse 35b. It says, women, A, women receive their, their, uh, back their dead raised to life again. I mean, resurrection from the dead. Now that's some, that's some powerful stuff. Hallelujah. But then he says this, there were others. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. So there's those who gained through faith the promise, but there's others who refused the deliverance these others broke into. These refused deliverance so they could gain a better promise. And we need to understand that there is a place in God where through revelation we understand that I could have breakthrough, but I'm going to defer it. I'm going to pass it on to the next generation so that with them I can have a greater resurrection. That demands a long-term mentality. That demands a multi-generational mentality. That demands a different type of faith. That demands a sense of sacrifice, a pioneering spirit that the others don't share. Now, both are valid expressions of faith. My concern is that the type of church we are and the streams that we fellowship in, we could tend to only recognize that first type of faith, those who secure the promise. But the writer said there are others, and it says that they don't gain what was promised. They, they pass it on to the next generation. And he talks about two groups of people. Now, I know some of this is review. We looked at this last week. But I want to make sure that we get this thing. Listen, listen to what he says. Uh, look in verse, verse 35, the latter part. There were others who were tortured. We talked last week. What is torture? Torture is the infliction of pain to manipulate behavior. You know the enemy will introduce pain in your life to get you off the ground that God has given you? You ever been there? That the enemy will throw everything at you. Paul calls it the evil day. And in the evil day, stand. And when you've done all, stand. It conjures up that image in, in 1 Samuel, David with da- or 2 Samuel, rather, the end of the book, with David's mighty men standing their ground. Benaniah and, and Shema, who, I believe it was Shema who stood in the lentil patch. And everybody else ran, but it says, Shema's hand froze to his sword, and he fought a great battle that day, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Everybody else retreated, and he said, I may go down, but I'm going down fighting, but I've been assigned to this lentil patch, and I'm going to stand my ground. Stand, and when you've done all, stand. So that demands a mentality in our lives that we embrace suffering. That we don't, at the first sign of of harm or suffering, that we don't hightail it off the ground and say, well, God would never require that of me. Not so fast. You see, there's, there's, this is where I want to go this morning. There There are three mentalities. There's the first mentality, 
which is, it, it, it really has to do with your worldview. You see, ideas have consequences. And no ideas have greater consequences than our ideas about God. Our ideas about God shape everything about us. Even if, you, if your idea of God is there is no God, I guarantee you, that has a controlling effect on everything about your life. So your view of God, it, it presents a worldview because God is the ultimate fact. So how you see God will determine how you see life. So theology is very important. There are different theological schools of thought and they're not all in agreement. And so we need to be Bereans and go back to the Word and say, what does the Word really say? We don't need to get our theology from the internet. We don't need to get our theology from our favorite podcast. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I read a lot of books. I listen to a lot of books. There's nothing wrong with that, but we better be taking what we're listening and reading and tying it back into the Word and testing it against the straight edge of God's Word. I know people who know more of John Calvin's theology than they know of Paul's theology. They can quote John Calvin more readily than they can quote Paul. And lest we be unfair to the Calvinists, there are Arminiists the same way. I know people who can quote more of Joyce Myers than they can quote of the Bible. I think Joyce Myers is a phenomenal teacher. But she's, she, not everything she says is the Word of God. Any more than everything I say is the Word of God. When you sit and listen to me preach, you need to be taking it back and testing the word. Because these ideas have huge ramifications in our life. And the way we view God will determine how we view life. And it will determine our posture in life. So let me do some big overarching theological themes here and, and help us find out, A, where we land presently, and be where we need to land from here on. <laughs> There's one view of God that emphasizes the sovereignty of God to such a degree that it crowds out some of the other theological themes of Scripture. It's called Calvinism. And one of the, the tenets of Calvinism is the, the sovereignty of God to the degree that everything that happens is orchestrated by him. You'll hear this phrase, everything is father-filtered. I've preached that. I don't believe that anymore. I'm sorry. If you sat under that, I apologize. It sounds good, but the fact is there are things that happen in life that aren't God's will. If everything that happens is God's will, we have negated the concept of sin. We've made sin nonsense, nonsensical because sin is being contrary to God's will. And if God willed something that's contrary to his will, he's a bundle of contradictions and it makes no sense anymore. But we have Calvinism that says everything that happens is God's will. Well, when you believe that, and I'm telling you, a lot of you are unconscious Calvinists. You say, I'm not a Calvinist, but you are. Because when push comes to shove, you think that everything that's happening in your life was orchestrated by God. And so you're in a dilemma. See, the posture that comes out of that mentality is, I've got to, I've got to uh, resign myself to these circumstances, and the purposes of the circumstances are to shape me so that I can be a man or woman of character. 
So resignation is the mode of operation under this worldview. And it's a, it comes out of a view of God, which creates a worldview that everything that's happening is orchestrated by God. Nothing is, uh, uh, you, you read some of the great Calvinists, R.C. Sproul, who just recently passed away within the last couple of years. Tremendous man of God. I have the utmost respect for him. Uh, hardcore Calvinist. And he would write on, on uh, I remember reading some stuff he wrote on quantum theory. And he just said, quantum theory is fascinating, but it can't be true. Because it does not fit with with, you know, theology. Well, it was his theology, and that was Calvinism, because quantum theory gives, uh, gives a lot of, it empowers human activity. Now I'm going to get down the weeds on this. So let, me just, let me just touch on this and put it this way, okay? The Newtonian view of reality, okay, that was, that, you know, I, I, Newton, Newton's view of reality was systems, the solar system. And it, it created this idea of the universe. Everything's predictable. We can, we can map out mathematically where the planets will be, 2 million years, 436 days, you know, down to the second. We can say the, the planets will be exactly there in their orbit because everything's predictable. Everything has been set in course. And it, that predictability was orchestrated by God, and it fits very well with a Calvinistic worldview that God is in control of everything. And that is true in the sense that God is all-powerful, he is in charge, but he's not in control because he has delegated that control, according to Psalm chapter 8, to others. And they will answer for that. He has delegated control for, to you. And you will answer for the control he delegated to you. God, is not, God doesn't have you on a string and you're not a puppet that he's manipulating you towards his ends. There are actually people who believe that God ordained for you to sin, to bring him glory. And it becomes, when you extrapolate that out, it becomes just a bundle of contradictions. But the fact is, in the telescopic view of reality, things are predictable. And when you look through the lens of God's eternal plan, that Calvinistic worldview does play out very well because God has marked out the end from the beginning and God has already declared how this thing will wrap up. So it wasn't that John Calvin was wrong. It's not that he didn't have truth. It's just that he didn't have the whole truth. None of us do. Quantum theory deals more with the microscopic. And when you get down to the microscopic, it gets fascinating. I know just enough to be confused, okay? I mean, it, it is. It's fascinating. When you get down to quantum theory, uh, it's the subatomic world. Whereas, uh, you know, the Newtonian view of reality is dealing with the telescopic, the big picture. The quantum world deals with the subatomic and the minuscule picture. And what they have found is that way, the way particles, I mean subatomic particles, manifest themselves are determined to great degree by human interaction. For instance, particles can manifest as both a ray and a, I believe that the terminology they would use is a particle and a ray. So a particle has very distinct boundaries. It is here, but it's not here. So there's, there's very clear boundary lines to that thing. But a ray, it is here, it's kind of here, it's not so much here, and I don't think it's here anymore. It's a gradual, you know, evaporation or whatever of that, that substance. What, does that make sense? So here's the deal. 
when they measure the subatomic world, when they begin to measure these subatomic particles as rays, you know what? They manifest as rays. But when they measure them as particles, you know what? They manifest as particles. What are they? It depends on what you measure them as. Because God has invested you as a human being with tremendous authority, and your interaction will determine how it will manifest. That is a very Arminianistic philosophy. It's a scientific application of the worldview of Arminianism. But that's the telescopic. So when we're looking at the eternal plan of God, God has marked out and he has said, this is where this thing's going. Every knee shall bow and all things shall be summed up in my son. It's going to happen. It's a done deal. How we get there is still to be seen. But it's going to happen. That is the telescopic view. But when we get into the everyday, daily interaction of human beings, now your activity, your choices have huge ramifications in the earth. That it was quantum theory where they begin to talk about the butterfly effect. Anybody know about the butterfly effect and the theory is, I think there was an advertisement that played off of this a few years ago. But the, the reason they call it the butterfly effect is the theory is that if a butterfly in Botswana gets allergies and sneezes and his left wing goes up, there's subatomic repercussions that will bump into a rhino butt, which will cause a stampede that you know, will cause a, you know, an earthquake. And eventually on the other part, side of the earth in America, you know, something else happens that we are all connected subatomically in their subatomic reproductions, and as I'm waving my hands, there's stuff flying all over, and you don't even know what I'm doing to you, you know? <laughs> in other words, I have a great effect in reality, and that's true, and that's biblical. That's not only true physically, you know, in, in some weird scientific way, that's true morally. My decisions matter in the earth. My yes matters. My no matters. So we have this worldview, and it's not that it's completely wrong, it's just not the whole truth. But it, when, we, when we, we camp out and say, this is the only truth, this is the whole truth, then we have to negate other passages, and we begin to talk about, okay, everything that happens, it came from God, and so therefore my posture in life is, I resign myself and I surrender to circumstances as surrender from God because the circumstances came from God. And everything's Father filtered and God, or God administered all my life and he stacked it in this way to create a certain effect in me and he's shaping me by these circumstances. And as a heart posture, when people do that sincerely as surrender to God, it is very noble. I'm not saying there's something innately wrong as a heart attitude, it just doesn't fit all of, all of reality. So then you have this other thing called Arminianism. And Arminianism really invests a lot of, uh, it, the, the, into the human will. It's, it, it, it highlights the authority of man. That's why charismatic Pentecostal movements tend to be Arminianistic, whereas the Calvinistic movements tend to be cessationists, or they know, they'd believe that the gifts of the Spirit are no longer for today. Now, there are some, some people who are weird hybrids, and I say that with the utmost respect when I say weird, but there, there is, it's, it's, it's rare to see a Calvinist charismatic. And there's a reason for that. It's logical why that doesn't happen a lot, because 
The gifts of the Spirit all of a sudden invest us with authority and we are called to release the kingdom on a fallen world. And we look at the world no longer as orchestrated by God but largely affected by sin. And God's orchestration in the universe comes through his children releasing his kingdom within them on the world. And so it's no longer resignation as a posture, it's revolt. That we are here to impose the kingdom on this fallen world. That when we see sickness and poverty and torment, we look at that as that is anti-kingdom and therefore anti-God and anti-us and we are here to release some sickum on it. You know, we're going to release the kingdom on this thing. And so, whereas this would be Reformed theology, you know, Reformed churches, uh, Presbyterianism, Lutheranism, and, but it's had a very, a very large influence even into Pentecostal ranks. So some of the Pentecostal movements I've been associated with at various times in my life are largely, they, they hold a lot to this view. They didn't hold to this view when they were established they were birthed out of revival fires, and so it was all about we're going to release signs and wonders, and we're going to undo the effects of sin through releasing the power of God on creation. But over time, as the revival fires began to die down, and they didn't see the release of power that they once did, rather than cry out for more power and another wave of revival, they began to adopt a theology that justified and explained away the lack of power through their hands, and they adopted this view. And we've got to be careful. And so this would be Presbyterianism, Lutheranism. And, 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 and I'm going to tell you, some of the greatest churches in this region fall within this camp. Some of the greatest men and women of God in this region fall within this camp. This is not a, a personal denigration. Lutheran Church of Hope is a, is a, is a you know, reformed theology. And it, to me, it is a kingdom sign and a wonder what God has done through that movement. It is. And man, we all need to step back and just put our hand over our mouth in a sense of awe. It's amazing what the Lord has accomplished. I knew a guy that about 25 years ago went and saw Bob Jones, the famous prophet. He was still alive at the time. And he said, I'm from Des Moines and I came to ask you, has God told you anything about Des Moines? And he said, yes, he's about to visit the Lutherans. Well... I think that was the word of the Lord. So understand, this is not some high and mighty, I've got it all together. Hey, I'm, I'm working out my own salvation, my own theology. I'm just explaining to you that neither one of these are the whole truth. This is the big telescopic view, but when you begin to adopt this in the microscopic, in the everyday, and in the individual, it really undermines our responsibility. See over here, uh, resignation to circumstances, embracing and allowing it to shape you is an act of surrender to God because God's the one that orchestrated those circumstances. To fight the circumstances, I'm fighting God. And there's a nobility in that sentiment, misguided in my opinion, but it, it's noble. Over here, revolt against this fallen world and the effects 
is embracing our responsibility before God. That's how we serve God. We see it as, if I'm going to be who I'm called to be, I need to embrace that, and I need to march with heaven, and I need to release the kingdom on these things, and I need to see what God What's contrary to God is contrary to the kingdom and therefore is something that I need to release the kingdom on and that is, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to undo the effects of the fall. So we have these two schools of thought. Here's the problem. Hebrews chapter 11 is a different view than both. I've been looking for a R word all morning. You know, revolt, resignation, revolt, and I don't have one. So I'll probably think of one Wednesday, you know. But over here is this Hebrews 11 consideration. And it really pulls from both of these schools of thought, pulls from both of these streams, and it recognizes the reality both of these Groups of people are contending with and, and to the best of their ability, trying to serve God with their whole heart through the limited lens that we, we all see through a glass darkly, you know it? The best we can do is always be rubbing on that lens. That's what teaching is. And there should always be in your walk with God for the rest of our life. That we're, if, if you have not been challenged in your belief system, if you haven't adjusted your belief system in the last six months, there's something wrong. If you haven't been challenged, then you haven't really been interacting with the word. The danger for all of us is that we already know what we believe. So when we read our Bible, we already impose our interpretation upon it because we already, we already know. We were taught that many years ago. And the Bible ceases to have the effect it's supposed to have on us. It is a revelation of reality. You know, the the Greeks had no word for reality. It was truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. He is the living form of the written form of our Bible, the truth. And it needs to be continually correcting us and provoking us and challenging us. And Hebrews 11 challenges me. So let's look at Hebrews 11 and listen to what it says. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. doesn't say that about the other group. My heroes. I mean, if, if I get to choose, I want, the, I want to be part of the other company. I want to be the guy that's administering justice, overcoming kingdoms, stopping the flames. Hallelujah. I'm not so much aspiring to facing jeers and flogging, chains and imprisonment. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. It was real faith. You see, now we're getting into the things that our precious Calvinist brethren look at as faith. 
And you know what? They're right. That, they're not, that in the midst of these circumstances, we're not going to accuse God. We're not going to allow ourselves to be offended. Now, I believe where the error comes is where the source of this suffering comes from. But the posture is essentially, we're going to gut it out, and we're going to walk through this thing, and we're not going to get offended with God. See, that, that first group, the one I aspire to, that's why I'm a... Arminiast, man. I, I want to see authority, power. I want to see, you know, the, the, the kingdom of darkness unravel. Hallelujah. But the fact is, we are all, to varying degrees, dealing with both of these realities at once, aren't we? We find ourselves in these passages. We find ourselves among the company of those who are overcoming evil with good and the kingdom being released to varying degrees in our life. And the fact is, in different seasons to varying degrees. There's some season that's like, man, I'm cooking in the first tribe, and then this, the next season I'm, I'm part of the second tribe. And, the, you know, there's all that. And there's every one of us, if we're honest, we have things in our life that we're struggling with. And if we look at that, we have to question, is this one of those situations? And there's two groups of people among those of whom the world is not worthy. Look at verse 35b again. There were others. What about the others who were tortured, refusing to be released? These consciously gave up. They consciously said, they, they were people of revelation. They understood something that very few believers in modern American theology understand that we can literally forego our deliverance. We can say, you know what, I'll pass because I know there's something going to be secured in the spirit that's going to cause a greater breakthrough in the next generation and that's mine as well. But I'm going to pass it to my children spiritually and biologically. I'm going to pass that. I'm going to pay the price now so they can have a breakthrough later. I'm going to, I'm going to lay it down here so they can have the breakthrough later. And with them, we have a greater breakthrough. And they did it consciously. It says they refused. It wasn't refused of them. It was refused by them. So there are those who consciously refuse. And, and in order to do that, you and I have to clearly understand this principle. That there is something that happens in the spiritual realm. We are clearing the way. That's why it's so apropos in the next passage. Look, if, I don't know if we can bring it up here. Ch Hebrews chapter 12, listen to what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, in other words, those who have gone before us, they're the ones who paved the way for us. They've got a vested interest in this thing. They, they built, you know, that, that phrase, our ceiling being our children's floor, where we're standing on someone else's ceiling. And we've got to understand that. And in light of that, he says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Why? Because we're going to honor the price they paid. It, there's more on the line than me simply losing my own investment, so to speak. I am squandering the inheritance of generations of believers that paid a price for you and I to be right here. So in light of that, when we look at their sacrifices, we realize, oh my goodness, 
There's a lot on the line. I, I, the, the sin that so easily entangles, I've got to lay that aside. But also those things that hinder. Because I don't want to squander the riches that were given to me by a previous generation. And the fact is, none of us are self-made men and women. There's not a person in this room that has not been the benef beneficiary of people who have gone before us. And the more we understand that, see what, what the, the writer of the Hebrews is doing? He is leveraging that reality for motivation to get you to live free. To the degree you understand that you are living in an inheritance that you are living as a beneficiary of a price others paid, to the degree you understand that is to the degree you're going to, in holy resolve, I'm going to live free and I'm going to run strong and I'm not going to faint, I'm not going to give up, I'm going to run hard because there's more on the line than my little, my, my little price that I paid, there's the price that others paid before me. And to the degree we understand that, it puts a holy resolve within us to live free and to run hard. So we've got to have this revelation. See, when we realize that we're building on the previous generation, then we begin to understand, oh, I get it. That means the price I pay can be passed to the next generation. If I'm the beneficiary of the last, they're the beneficiary of me. I used to preach this sermon on Father's Day. I probably preached it three or four times since I've been the pastor here, and then I figured I, I, I need to quit it. I've said it enough. But years ago, I was reading through Genesis, and I saw this verse. It jumped off the page and it struck me the context. I was like, that is out of context. And this is what it says. And this is the story of Jacob. Joseph, a young boy of 17. And it starts talking about Joseph and being sold by his brothers and, you know, in the, in the pit and the prison and, and the, you know, ascension to the throne, the pit, the prison, the palace. You know, that's good preaching. And uh, all that stuff, you know. And, and, uh, but... But the introduction to this story was, and this is the story of Jacob. And I was like, whoa, back up the theological truck here. Why did he call this Jacob's story? And if you look where that passage is, there's all this material about Jacob. He's already told us about Jacob, chapter after chapter after chapter. And all of a sudden, in the middle of Jacob's life, it says, and this is the story of Jacob. Insinuating that everything before that was someone else's story. You know whose story it was? Isaac's. Isaac's story was Jacob and Esau. Jacob's story was Joseph and his brothers and his sisters. The fact is, our story is the next generation. And if we understand that, we've been the recipient. My dad wrote a story. And he can look and say, my sons and my daughter, this is what they're doing. And my dad, he, he, he's, he is, he's proud. He, he tells me all the time, he's just proud. And, and uh, my dad pastors a church for, for Heartland. He uh, pastors Heartland Ottumwa. And I had someone ask me one time, you know, man, do you, you know, man, your dad's pastoring a church for you. Is that kind of awkward? He's working for you. And I, I was like, what do you mean? And he's not really working for me, but he, you know, what do you mean? And uh, they were, and anyway, it's like, well, you know, it's just like, you're, you're the leader and your dad. And, and 
I told him, I said, that would be like, as a little kid, I said, I can't reach that, that bean can up on the upper shelf, Dad. And my dad says, neither can I, but here, let me pick you up. And he lifts me up and he reaches it. And then as a little, my little tiny hand grabs the bean can and then me to look down at him and despise him like, you couldn't reach it. Well, neither could I. He got closer than I did. And the only reason I can reach is that I'm in his arms. And if we realize that, we walk in humility and gratitude for the sacrifices, but it also gives us holy resolve. I want to live my life in such a way. I want to invest in the next generation. I want to see a harvest. I'm going to defer my deliverance. Now, there's more to this thing that I don't understand. I really do not understand how in the midst of torture, somebody can make a conscious decision, eh, no thanks. Lord, just pass it on. I'll die. Just, just let them torture me and I'll die, believing. Because I know that that's going to give a greater inheritance in the next generation. I can't even comprehend that, but that's what it says. It's an amazing principle that our posture now, but see, what this demands of us is that long-term mentality. And all of a sudden, we're pulling out of both of these streams, Calvinism and Arminianism. You see, Calvinism does tend to have a long-term mentality when it's looking at the future. They are multi-generational builders. They're not so much as the Arminianists and the Pentecostal charismatics that I am, that we are, that we're, we're always about breakthrough, 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 the immediate, the urgency. And we're so into urgency that we can fail to understand the necessity of longevity. That we're all about the event, the breakthrough, and fail to have this long-term, multi-generational planning. But see, this thing over here understands the validity of both, and it says, you know what, I'm going to let go of the opportunity now that it's offered to me. That's what it insinuates. It's offered to me. I'm going to let go. There's an urgency in my heart. I want to see deliverance now. But I'm going to say, I'll lay it down, and I'm going to let it go because I understand longevity and multi-generational breakthrough, and that if I pass it to the next generation, there's a snowballing of interest in this thing, that there's going to be a greater breakthrough, and with them, we can break into it together. And I will only be able to look at it from afar, from the other side of the grave, and that's why we have this thing called the great cloud of witnesses. They're all up there in the stands going, go, woo I'm just silly enough to believe that Bob Phillips looks in on these services, that Pastor J. Albert Calloway gets to peek in on Sunday mornings every now and then. He's around the throne, the Lord, the Lord will say, hey, Albert, check out what's going on at Heartland. See, you see from my perspective, it's bigger than you think. It's greater than you think. It's greater than they understand what I'm accomplishing through those people who will stand in adversity. Why, why, why would there be a great cloud of witnesses? Their time, they're, they've already done their thing. They've already received their reward. No, they have not. It says only with us will they receive. Because they have an investment, it implies that God lets them watch. Because they said, you know what? I'm going to roll it over. I could have cashed in. But I said, no, I'm going to roll it over into the next generation. 
They consciously did so. But that's not the only people. Look at what it says in verse 39. And these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. There's an implication in that passage that this company of people, and I would make a distinction between those who consciously said, I'll let it go, and those who God said, I'm not going to give it to you. Even though I gave you a promise and you are exercising faith, I'm going to withhold it from you. These people were working and operating in revelation. They understood a principle. That is a strange principle we don't hear much about. But it's that thing that says, I'm willing to forego what I could have stepped into as a believer in my generation. And I'm going to push it off to the next generation so they can have something greater than they would have had had I cashed in now. They did that by revelation. But there's others. And these are also of the company of whom the world is not worthy. And that is, they walk in the mystery, in the fog. They don't understand what's going on. There's the mist of the mystery. They can't see what's going on. They don't understand. They just know God spoke to them. They heard from the Lord. He says, their faith, he says, it's real faith. It wasn't just some presumption. It wasn't naivety. It wasn't gullibility. It was faith. And it says, the promise. It was God's promise. It wasn't some kind of thing they conjured up, some funky, you know, uh, ill-conceived prophetic word. It was a true blue promise from God and they latched onto it by faith and still, even though they know in their dying breath, God told me, I'm telling you, I heard the Lord and they die not receiving. God said, I'm not going to give it to you. Leaves them in the dark and they refuse to be offended and they pass into the next life. And that's where most people when they go through those things, find themselves. It's not this one, we're walking in revelation and we consciously understand. It's that we're, we're pounding and crying out and wanting to see breakthrough and we don't understand. And I'm telling you, there is something so noble about that. That you're saying, God, I'm going to yield to you. I refuse to be offended. I don't understand why this is. I just know you cannot lie. I know what I heard. I know what your word says. I'm going to believe you till my dying breath. And it says they die believing. And it's only after death that they realize, looking back over, as the old timers say, back over the River Jordan. <laughs> and they're on the other side and they see, oh, that was God. God was giving me a greater inheritance by refusing me the deliverance he promised me. And it wasn't that he violated his integrity by doing so. It's that I misunderstood the arrival date. The deliverance arrives after I depart. I'm the one he spoke it to, and I'm going to believe him to the end, but the deliverance will arrive. And there's something about people that have that, that posture, refuse to be offended, stand their ground. I'm telling you, they, they make a clearing for the others. And, and this is what I tried to get to, and I got caught up in the weeds on chapter 12. Listen to what it says here. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. This particular translation, I love it. It says, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. There's different translations translated different ways. But this one calls it the pioneer. 
That's a great translation because it really sums up in one word what this whole passage is about. You see, there's pioneers and there's settlers. There's those who create the clearing and those who build on it. The pioneer very rarely gets to eat from the fruit of his labors because his time is spent going into the rough-hewn wilderness and, and hammering out a clearing, and they might even get some streets marked out, and then they die of old age, never seeing what they fought so hard for. And then in posterity, they, they build this, you know, build a city, and they talk about, you know, the great-great-granddaddy that pioneered the thing. Somebody paid the price for others to settle in. Jesus is the pioneer of our faith. He paid the price and died believing, not receiving all that he could have. He, for, he could have called 10,000 angels for his deliverance. But he said, no, I will pass it on. I'm going to give up the ghost. And he kept his eye. It says right there, he kept his eyes on the prize for the joy set before him. You and I, he endured the cross and refused to come off and gave up the ghost. And here what the enemy didn't understand is death became the vehicle of life. The very thing that was issued as a judgment in the garden really had this little prophetic promise within it because in the garden there were seed-bearing plants and those seeds had to fall into the ground and die and then bloom and have more. So death was part of original creation in that sense. And Jesus talked about germination as death. Except a kernel of grain fall into the ground and die. And he was prophesying his death. But that was way back in the pattern of creation. And so when Jesus, as that kernel of grain, died, the life that overcame every sin in him went into the grave. And when he resurrected, it's in the many. He released the kingdom. You and I are the recipients of his, his investment. And the fact is, you and I can live that way. You and I can live in such a way that we pass it on. And, and I don't think, I, I can't explain it. All I can do is pray that God reveals it to our hearts and explains it to us over time. But I'm telling you that there is something that is established in the spirit when there are men and women, in spite of the fact that they don't see the breakthrough, but till the, their dying breath they say, I'm telling you, I believe God. He's good. He didn't lie. He cannot lie. That's what he said, and I believe it, and I don't understand why it hasn't happened, but the problem's not on his side, it's on my side, and they drop over dead. Something is cleared. It's that pioneer thing where there's a clearing made for the next generation. And let me close with this. Many of you have heard me tell this story, but it was about four or five, well, sometimes in the last 30 years, okay? Um, we were in a board meeting, and uh, we, we had a board meeting that night, and we, we were going to get, I think we st stopped early. That's why I was praying. I was like, whoo, glory. Felt the glory in there. We were getting out of there early. And so I stood up and started praying over different board members, and there was Ray Henderson. I laid my hands on him. And when I laid my hands on him, I closed my eyes, and all of a sudden I saw Ray Henderson in the spirit. And I was astounded because of the magnitude of this man in the spirit. I'm telling you, he had two pecs, man. I mean, his, his chest was, literally, you could have put a TV tray and just ate off his chest. The dude was like this. 
you know. I mean, he was, he was a bad dude. Big old shoulders. He was just sitting there. I open up. There's, there's Ray. Little Ray. Close my eyes. Big Ray. Little Ray. Big Ray. Big Ray. Whoa, whoa. I was, and I was, I was blown away at what he really looks like in the spirit. And I'll never forget, there was a piece of armor on his chest. It was about this thick. And it, went, it was molded into, you know, looked like it had a six-pack molded into big pecs, you know. And, and, uh, and then it, at the top, it curled. It had this big curl at the top. And there were deep gouges, but it was about this thick. So you would have had to, you know, I mean, it could have gouges this thick and never come close to touching them. He, that man has been through battles. I'm telling you, what that man, it, Ray, where are you at? Yeah, there we go. He's up in the cheap seats. He had a, Ray, Ray is... So much bigger in the spirit than he is in the physical. If you could have only seen, I've, I've never been able to look at Ray the same way. He is one big bad dude. I'm telling you, he has been through some. There he was with this like 30-year-old Hulk body with, it, with his white hair, you know, white, that, his same head. You're like, wow. And I saw him and I was blown away. And all of a sudden, the vision began to change, and I saw a black cloth fall out of heaven. Not out of heaven, it was, fell out of the sky, and it came over him, and I saw him fighting, and I heard these words, the struggle of the son is the failure of the father, and I knew it was the voice of the enemy lying to Ray, and I knew it was the battle of his life, and that the cuts in his armor were from that very battle. And I saw, finally, Ray threw that black cloth off, and his, his armor was like... He was bad before. Now his armor shines, you know. And then the Lord spoke to me very clearly. And the interesting thing, I knew immediately what he meant. He said, serve lentil stew. And I knew. So with that, let's close. No, I'll explain to you. <laughs> what he said, he said, serve lentil stew. It was a picture out of that David's mighty men, and where he stood on the lentil patch, everybody else retreated, but I want, you, I want to say it was shame. It might have been Benaniah, stood his ground, and it says the Lord brought about a great victory that day. He, 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 he guarded a lentil patch. It's like a pea patch, kind of bean patch. He, to him it was valuable, and he said, I'm not going to let the enemy have it, even if I have to give my life. And what the Lord was saying is when you fight through these things, your battlefield becomes a garden out of which you can feed others. You can feed them the victory that you secured in the spirit. And I knew that that battle was over their precious son. Ray and Joy's son that they prayed for so, for so many years that struggled with his, his gen, gender identity. And, or, I mean, it, you know, he, he was, uh, struggled with homosexuality and they prayed for him and prayed for him. And at the time, I saw this great victory that Ray carried. It was for family and for deliverance. And I knew, he, man, that boy can make some stew for families. If you want prayer for your family, have Ray lay her hands on you. Have Joyce lay her hands on you. I'd like to see her in the spirit. I've never seen her yet. But what shocked me is that the situation hadn't changed yet. And I realized the battle was not so much over the son as it was the enemy trying to impose an identity on Ray and accuse God through that. And so the real battle was, I am going to 
stand in who God's called me to be, and I'm still going to worship him, even though there's this painful situation I haven't seen deliverance on yet. Now, their son ended up passing away just a couple of years ago, but got saved just before he passed. The victory was secured. But I'm telling you, the great, the great victory that was secured in the spirit. Ray, as a pioneer, clear, there's a clearing in the spirit for the generations of the Henderson families. And the fact is, for the Heartland family. Because he's part of our family. That's our inheritance. He's a father in the house. And so there's, there's a securing of something in the spirit. There's been made a clearing in that undergrowth because Ray and Joyce took a stand. And I saw the, the acute accusations of the enemy and the enemy trying to lie. And Ray stood in fierce battle. I saw the same. I saw a battle over Rick and Carrie Arrowwood. I saw Rick at a keyboards worshiping Jesus. And I saw him just weeping and just worshiping and worshiping and just weeping. And I love to sit when Rick plays the keyboards. I, I just, it's just like revelatory for me. I'll just sit on the front and just listen and just get things from the Lord. And all of a sudden I realized that was when Rick went through that painful divorce and watched his family fall apart, lost his ministry, and didn't know what was going to happen to his family. He hadn't met Carrie yet. But yet he refused to get off that ground. God, you're worthy. You're worthy. And what I don't think Rick probably understood at the time, but I think he does now, is he was creating a clearing for his family to live on. He was pioneering something for the Arrowwood clan. Now, this man has tremendous inheritance. He's Richard Arrowwood's son. I mean, come on. Those of you who know Richard, I mean, that's saying something. But Rick was creating a fresh clearing for the future generations. Your stand means something to God. And I'm here to tell you this morning, the greatest battle is not so much about the very situation you're praying about. It's your response towards God and even yourself in light of that lack of movement in that area. Will you take your stand and say, God, I still worship you. You're still worthy, and I refuse to give up my pea patch. I'm gonna, they, you know, the enemy may try to torture me and leverage pain to manipulate my behavior, but I'm going to stand on the ground, and if I die, I'm going down fighting. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Hallelujah. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. I apologize for going so late here. I want you to raise your hand before the Lord. I just want to pray a blessing over you. Father, Lord, I'm asking God that this word, this word from your word, Lord, these principles, Lord, I'm asking God that in the coming days they would become part of our inheritance in this house, Lord. They would become the wealth of this house. Lord, that we would be firmly established in an understanding of the facets of faith, Lord, we thank you for our Calvinist brothers who have a revelation of longevity and standing in the, in the place of pain and not giving in. And Lord, we thank you for our Arminius brothers who understand we are here to release the kingdom. But Lord, we want to be a Hebrews 11 people that pull from both, Lord. And so Lord, I'm asking for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Lord, I ask that you would make it real to us. And Father, help open our eyes to see the wealth we've inherited 
and the wealth we can leave behind for future generations. Lord, I thank you that your word says that a great man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. That it's our responsibility to think at least three generations. Not just for ourselves, but at, at least for our grandchildren, if not for our great, 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 great grandbabies. Lord, I thank you. And Lord, I ask God that you would minister to the heart of every mother in this room, every father in this room, Lord, everybody that is aching for their children, their wayward sons and daughters, Lord, we declare over them deliverance. Father, we claim them for you. And Lord, we refuse to allow the enemy to accuse us. Lord, if there's things we did wrong, we embrace responsibility, we repent, and we shake it off. But Lord, we're declaring deliverance over our families, Lord. And Lord, help us to see that our posture before you means everything to them that we literally create a clearing in the spirit that they can step into freedom upon. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.